Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Joining us today at the table is Matt Bennett, and Matt recently shared with our church from the 14th chapter of Matthew, and that brings us to the halfway point in our continuing study of the first of this New Testament gospel accounts. Matt, thanks for joining us again. You've pretty much become a regular here recently. <laughs> yeah, no, it's my pleasure. Well, I, we appreciate the work you're putting in. I know uh, I know you put in a lot of hours in preparation each week that you mm-hmm. preach, and so mm-hmm. we were certainly appreciated as a church. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, the halfway mark in any endeavor is often a good time to consider where we've been and also where we're going. Why don't we take some time here at this point to review where we've been through the first 14 chapters of Matthew's narrative? Hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, as we've kind of broken down some of the the teachings and kind of seeing different segments of, of the book of Matthew, we began by noting that Matthew is intent on introducing Jesus as that long-awaited Davidic king who's fulfilling the messianic expectations that were there in the Old Testament, um, that the people were longing to see this one who would uh, not only be the one who would be the seed of the the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, but also that one who would be a prophet like Moses raised up from among his brothers, and the one who would be David's offspring, who would sit on an eternal throne, and the one like Jeremiah who was going to bring a, a new covenant where the law would be written on hearts of flesh. And uh, what we see is Matthew's intent on introducing Jesus and giving us a picture of his identity in those first few chapters as we see him uh, introduced um, as this Messiah. But then in chapters 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus begins to speak for himself, and he, he teaches as one who has authority, not as the teachers of the law. And so we begin to see him testifying by his own works and his own teaching that, yes, This is what happens when the one who is to come arrives in your midst. And then following that in chapters 8 through 9 especially, we saw Jesus exemplifying his power as some of those messianic signs were coming true through his ministry, that the miracles he was doing weren't just random uh, explosions of his his power, but rather they were connected to those anticipations that Mm. the people were should have been seeing. So then when Jesus goes in and sends his disciples out in chapter 10 to announce that the kingdom is here, there's a sense in which that king who's been introduced is announcing the reign of, of his, his broader kingdom, and he's sending out his ambassadors to, to make those good news announcements. And then as he continues on, as uh, so we saw Jeremy especially lead us through, he begins to teach in a way that's maybe unexpected, but which brings about some of the... Uh, some of the the warnings, I guess, that the prophets put in front of us of saying that there's going to be a day where God's going to act and he's going to teach, but he's going to teach in parables and in Mm -hmm. ways that those without ears to hear actually aren't going to hear, and it's going to be an indication of proper judgment against those who are resisting this incoming kingdom. But contrasted to that, you saw the disciples, who are those who sought out Jesus afterwards and said, explain to us, what do these mean? And we see in that contrast, those who have ears to hear are the ones that are blessed in receiving the Messiah that God has been intent in sending. 
you you talk about the Old Testament, and, and I think to those ones who immediately received Christ, I think of a Simeon hmm. who had been waiting and mm-hmm. waiting, and God mm-hmm. had told him somehow that he would not see death until and then mm-hmm. until Christ, the Christ came, the Messiah came, and mm-hmm. he's there in the temple probably every week hmm. and hmm. maybe even every day. Hmm. Uh, we know Anna uh, was there regularly, and but Simeon saw him. Simeon knew the the wise men even mm-hmm. who were not Jews, came. They saw the star and they mm-hmm. came. They recognized the signs. Um, but the scribes and Pharisees, on the whole, now mm-hmm. there were certain ones who did, who mm-hmm. recognized, but mm-hmm. the scribes and Pharisees just, they missed it. Mm-hmm. Nationalistic pride, perhaps, uh, setting the, the, the dynamic that they had set up around the, uh, around the law of the, mm-hmm. of the Lord, mm-hmm. they missed it. Power, position, selfishness, uh, recognition that what Jesus is calling them to is going to be sacrificial for them in stepping down from their own self-preservation and their own sense of self self-righteousness. What they wanted, yeah. right? Uh, there's any number of things, yeah. right? We we were talking here before we went on uh, the microphones about ones who have to step away from things that are very important to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, even sometimes we find our our identity mm-hmm. in these things. Mm-hmm. But if we look at Scripture and really seek after God's ways, He's going to pull us away from those some often. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Matt, we can reflect on chapter 11. Go even back to chapter 11 and note that John, uh, at that point, was asking Jesus for some clarification about whether he was, in fact, the one whom John had understood him to be for all his life, mm-hmm. dating back to his time in the womb when mm-hmm. he responded to uh, mm-hmm. to Mary's voice when he was in Elizabeth's womb. And, and now that faithful cousin, John, uh, the one of whom Jesus said, and, and this is a dynamic quote from Jesus, among those born of women there has risen no one one greater than John the Baptist. Now he's dead. Hmm. And I'm going to suggest that there may have been some lessons here. There may be some lessons here for each of us. And and, uh, one is that God gives each of us a part to play in his story, but we don't always get to choose the part. In fact, we rarely get to choose the part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I do think, alluded to this briefly in the, the message, but I think there is a sense in which John fulfills a, a patterned role of what a prophet in the Old Testament can expect. Um, I mean, how many of the prophets were those lauded, uh, well-received guys who came in and, and spoke a hard word and were received with gratitude? I mean, the prophets were mistreated. They were put to death. Think of Jesus' um, parable of the the vineyard owners and the, the sending of the, the servants who are mistreated and finally the sending of the son who's who's killed and thrown out. I mean, this, this is a pattern of what it looks like to follow what the Lord is putting in front of, of you if you are, in fact, a, a prophet. And so John's death is certainly... Not something that I'm assuming he chose or right. would have chosen for himself, but there was something of a, a more compelling vision of what the Lord had, had called him to do and to say that allowed him to go, to go ahead, even to his death. Right, and uh, it brings to mind what, uh, what James uh, tells those who are uh, teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, be careful mm-hmm. uh, when you're a teacher. There are yeah. a lot of things that can happen, and one of them, of course, is the thinking more of yourself than you than you are. Yeah. But uh, 
be careful what you're getting into because it is a very serious thing. Yeah. One one thing that stepped out, stuck out to me that I didn't necessarily get to unpack in um, reflecting on that in the, the sermon is uh, transitioning to Jesus hearing about this. Uh, at the very end, you've got the disciples of John burying uh, John's body, but then going and reporting it to Jesus. And at the beginning of the feeding the 5,000 story, Jesus is actually retreating by himself mm-hmm. in, in some ways to, to grieve no the loss of, of his cousin. And there's a sense in which you see that, that real visceral impact of a sin committed against a, a beloved one, even when that beloved one is doing the thing that the Lord would ask of him. There's, there's a proper grief to that. Mm. But it's interesting that immediately following Jesus's retreat, the crowds approach him <laughs> with all of their needs, and Jesus doesn't say, "Just give me a minute." Right. But he attends to their needs again, moved by compassion. So there's something, there's something really beautiful in just Jesus's disposition to be present, to be available, and to even exhibit some of that self-sacrifice of what would have been a, an appropriate time to say, "Hey." guys back off for a minute. Right, and it certainly brings to mind, uh, to my mind, the story of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Mm-hmm. Uh, he comes, he, he cries, he weeps mm-hmm. at Lazarus's death, but then he doesn't retreat there either. Yeah. He takes care of, of business. Yeah. Well, we have two pretty famous miracles, ones that come up often, uh, one very public and mm-hmm. one rather private, really. But but it appears that the main audience, or it appears to me anyway, mm-hmm. that the main audience of both is the disciples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you may have maybe as many as 20,000 mm-hmm. people around, but Jesus, in that particular miracle, the feeding of the of the 5,000 men, and mm-hmm. again, we think maybe mm-hmm. fifteen to 20,000 or, mm-hmm. or, or how many, but Jesus engages the disciples to assist him in the, in the feeding of this mass of people. Can't help but think that I might have rolled my eyes if Jesus said, hey, here's a, a piece of a fish and a, a loaf. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Jesus gave that to me and to distribute to a section of this mass of humanity, but then I, I think that just like Jesus used the disciples in this miracle, he does employ us regularly in modern-day miracles. Certainly mm-hmm. the miracle of salvation, he often uses mm-hmm. his people. Yeah, yeah, and I think we've, we've already seen a little glimpse of this in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus concludes Matthew chapter 9 by saying, the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the fields. And then in chapter 10, he sends laborers. Right. He sends them uh, two by two uh, out to proclaim the, the coming of the kingdom. So you see that there's a, an intentional transition of sorts that's, mm-hmm. that's happening as Jesus is announcing the kingdom, but he's also giving that responsibility into the hands of his disciples, which prefigures some of this, um, that he's going to see the, the miraculous multiplication of resources mm-hmm. right. entrusted to the hands of the disciples that then are going to be those same hands that bear evidence to the the multitude, the abundance, the unexpected, overwhelming result of his work. And I can't help but see a foreshadowing, maybe it's some of my mission's background, but I can't help but see a foreshadowing of even what we see in the Great Commission, too, that there's an entrusting of the things of God that have been accomplished in and through Christ. It's his power, but it's entrusted, promised to the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I'm with you to the end of the age. So he's going to be the one who's the the source of that power and proclamation, but he's using his disciples as the conduits to go, to make disciples, to teach, and to baptize. 
And any good leadership manual is going to talk about just what Jesus does here, empowering, giving authority to those individuals. You uh, can carry it forward into what Paul says in Ephesians about the elders of the church and the leaders of the church, those who have been gifted with uh, with gifts, are to pass those on mm-hmm. to for the edifying of the body so mm-hmm. that Christ might be glorified. Yeah. And whatever, whatever size the gifts present themselves as, whether right. it's five loaves and two fish or uh, some disciples who have already shown themselves to be full of doubts, um, the reality is the one who spoke those resources into being is the, the source <laughs> of their multiplication. Right. Right. And so there's, there's hope, not in our human ability, but in the one who's entrusted it right. to us. Great. But, and then let's move forward to the picture of, of Jesus walking on that, that wind-sept sea. And Peter, in faith, goes out to meet him. Once again, it appears that, among other things, Matthew is illustrating through the use of that eyewitness account. He evidently was there. That our effectiveness in any ministry effort is directly proportional to our faith and in reliance on Jesus. Yeah, I'll just be totally honest. Uh, the more I, I read this passage, the more I just kind of found myself scratching my head afresh, just being like, Jesus is clearly, the reason he's walking on the water is to come to the disciples. There's nothing that should have compelled Peter to say, call me out to you. Uh, right. Jesus is coming to him. Like, And I certainly wouldn't only... have done that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm safe, safe yeah. enough here. Yeah. And uh, so it is a unique story, and I, I do think there's something to be learned mm-hmm. about the the capacity of the Lord to call his people to to walk towards him in faith and that there is that provision of things that would otherwise be unthinkable that are made possible in Christ. But I, I do think that more than even Peter walking on the water, um, I think the most important part of that story is not the water walk, but it's mm-hmm. the response of the disciples when mm-hmm. they land in the boat and mm-hmm. that... Uh, if there's any faith that I know I am to emulate, it's that faith of saying, this one is worthy of worship and truly is the son of God. And so uh, I guess that's that's more what captured my attention in this passage, more so mm-hmm. than walking on the water uh, for Peter. Right. Good, good. Well, man, I'm looking ahead to chapter 15. I mm-hmm. note there that Jesus is still in Galilee region, and, and once again he faces a multitude of people who's gathered together. This time there are 4,000 men, mm-hmm. along with an additional count of women and children. Why Why do you think we're not going to be getting to it? We'll talk about that here in mm-hmm. just a few minutes but uh, in our podcast. But what is Matthew's point as he includes two such similar miracles within a relatively short span of time? Yeah, I I was reading in a commentary that kind of, uh, in some ways, made the allusion uh, to the first, uh, the first feeding of the five thousand and the twelve baskets full um, of re- of leftovers, as being something that the even just the numerical connection to the mm-hmm. twelve tribes of Is- right. Israel was intended to be drawing out this satisfaction, this abundance, and the fulfillment of Israel's expectations. Mm -hmm. And then, at least according to this commentator, it was Donald Hagner, um, for those who are interested, (laughs) um, he suggested that in the the feeding of the 4,000 and the the seven baskets full, that this may be connected to uh, more of a provision for the Gentiles. Hmm. And I'm not sure... Descriptions, right. I'm not sure that that's, you know 
the most convincing. It's it's possible, mm-hmm. um, considering previous to this, there is the recognition of the Gentile mother and her faith um, and things of that nature, that there, there seems to be some indication that Jesus' ministry is going to spill over not just to the Jews, who he's coming to first, but then also to the Gentiles. Um, so I, I can see some of the potential for that. But then uh, Matthew's intent on calling out the fact that he's doubled these stories up later when the disciples, Jesus warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees, and they say, oh, he's mad because we didn't bring bread. And he's like, (laughs) wait, 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 don't you remember the 5,000, the 4,000? Like, I I can do this. That's not what I'm talking about. So Matthew's intentional in recording these twice. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. Okay, good. good. Well, Matt, we, we kicked off with a review of the first half of the book. Let's end our time together today as we preview chapters 15 through 28. Yeah. Um, uh, I had mentioned in the sermon that though we've got the disciples in the boat recognizing Jesus as the Son of God and mm-hmm. worshiping him at this rather high moment of, of Matthew's Christology, uh, we actually get a, a further development of how the disciples are responding as those with eyes to see um, and ears to hear, particularly as we look to chapter 16. And then we're going to see Jesus unpacking a little bit more, not only of the fact that he's going to continue to be misunderstood by those without ears to hear and eyes to see, um, but that he's also going to suffer at their hands. And so there's a there's a darkening of, you know, Jesus's discussion of right. what's to come at the same yeah. time as the disciples are beginning to make more and more uh, of a of sense of, of who this man is. And in the midst of that, Jesus does, um, in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, begin to talk about his purposes of building a church. And as he's going to continue to talk about the the persecution and the, the things that are going to come against this church, there is a, a beautiful promise throughout that no matter how dark it's going to get, this kingdom will prevail. This church will not uh, will not be succumbing to the gates of hell, um, but rather this is the way forward. And so in some ways his preparation for his disciples to see him going to the cross is something that he's already preparing them to acknowledge that uh, these sorts of persecutions, trials, and and struggles stand in your future too, but take heart. (laughs) Take heart because I've overcome the world. And then as we see the passion uh, narrative and and ultimately the the hope of our salvation and his crucifixion and his resurrection— we conclude this book with those well-known words of the, the Great Commission, where we see Jesus' ministry not being complete at his ascension, but rather being continued through the work of his disciples who proclaim what he has accomplished once and for all. Mm-hmm. And that continuing theme of authority, and mm-hmm. you mentioned it uh, through the first half of the book, you've alluded to it here, and that authority uh, really, it didn't just start in chapter 7 when we mm-hmm. first see that word, mm-hmm. he taught us one uh, having authority, but it started clear back, uh, you know, well, even in the Genesis account, if we want to go all the way back to the Genesis, he has ultimate authority, and he continues even during the Passion. Yeah. We're going to see that very clearly. He is still in control, yeah, still absolutely. exercising that. 
Yeah, great. great. Well, Matt, thanks so much for sharing today. We appreciate your good work. And I've been talking with Matt Bennett as we continue to, to discuss Jesus's developing ministry in Matthew's Gospel account. You can access Matt's sermon and many other messages from our extensive audio catalog, as well as each of our podcast episodes by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and your comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And now we want to share with you a brief programming note. Today marks the end of the first season of our podcast. That's 46 weekly episodes that we've produced and shared with you. And what started out as a four-week experiment as we began our study in Ephesians back in January of this year has turned into a weekly pleasure for me. And I know that the individuals who have been preaching each week have enjoyed the time to come in. I know Matt here, uh, they have told me they've enjoyed that opportunity to share God's Word in this more relaxed and conversational format. And so we'll be taking the month of December off from recording, and we look forward to returning at the first part of the year with a new format and renewed energy. And you can help us to plan for that coming season by letting us know if you have any ideas of how we can increase the effectiveness of our efforts here. So until we return for season number two, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, with a great big thanks to our producer, engineer, sound technician, and all-around good guy, Taylor Robinette. Taylor's done a great job for us this year. We thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.